to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice that making disciples doesn't stop with conversion. Making disciples includes identifying people with Jesus and his church through baptism. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is the ordinance Jesus gave to the church to celebrate when sinners identify themselves publicly as Jesus followers. Baptism is no mere ritual, but the visual expression that you are now dead to sin. You've been buried in the likeness of Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. You're newness of life. You're alive to God in Christ Jesus, Romans 6 teaches us. Baptism is our pledge of, of sorts to, to submit to Jesus' lordship alone. But baptism also identifies you with Christ's church, his visible kingdom on earth. You have a visible ordinance for a visible kingdom. Baptism marks you off from the world along with the rest of Christ's church. It says the domain of darkness is not where you belong anymore. You belong to Messiah's new community. So to be baptized, for example, in Acts 2 was simultaneously to be added to the church. And then later, both Paul and Peter, as they write letters to local churches, they work from the assumption that the folks to whom they're writing have all been baptized. It's, it's a convenient teaching point for them over and over again since nobody was in the church who hadn't already gone through the waters of baptism. So the fact that Jesus mentions baptism is, is one way we know he envisions the local church in the Great Commission. But, but, but more than that, he commissions us to teach every convert his commandments. And not just to teach but to hold people accountable to observing those commandments. Jesus himself brings this up in Matthew chapter 18. Even before he gets to the Great Commission, Jesus has already said a few things about the church in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 now. He prepares his disciples to hear the Great Commission, this, this final charge in light of what he's already taught them about the church. And in Matthew 18, Jesus teaches his disciples how to practice discipline in a local church when unrepentance characterizes an erring church member. If a professing Christian is not following Jesus' commands and refuses to repent again and again, the matter is then to be taken before the local church. And the church is then to extend more love to this erring uh, uh, person by calling them to repentance, showing them the way of Christ. The church even has the authority under Christ to excommunicate the person if they refuse to submit to Jesus' rule. And so he says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is another way for Jesus to say, I will demonstrate my heavenly authority on earth through visible, local identifiable assemblies of people who submit to my rule and authority in all things. And that is the local church. Now, now hear the Great Commission in light of Matthew 18. 
making disciples by baptizing them and teaching them to observe with one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. All of this envisions the establishment of visible assemblies of people who've been freed from the power of sin, who declare that freedom publicly through baptism, and who grow daily in their submission to Jesus' rule while brothers and sisters are cheering them on in the faith and holding them accountable to the truth. Where do these things happen? Well, they happen in and through the local church, the rest of the New Testament tells us. And one great example of this we can find in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. Paul gives us a snapshot of the local church making disciples. Maturity in Christ comes through the local church making disciples, and we see this. In fact, the snapshot that Paul gives us in Ephesians 4 includes both baptism and teaching, which is what, Matt, with what uh, Matthew 28, has, Jesus has just spelled out here in Matthew 28. We'll see that in a moment, the baptism and teaching. But first, I'd like us to race through the first three chapters of Ephesians. Because lest we forget, the church doesn't spring out of nowhere. The church itself is built on the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus that gives us new life and then compels us to bring that same message into the lives of, of others. And so right from the start, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, the church is seen as a community that was ordained from eternity past. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And not too many verses later, in chapter 1, verse 9, we see that God had a purpose that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time for this people, this church. It was a plan that included looking with mercy upon a fallen and cursed world and providing redemption for guilty sinners through the death of God's only son. This son would come as a husband, full of love for his adulterous and straying bride, and he would win her for himself by washing her and forgiving all her trespasses by the blood he would spill in her place. It was also a cosmic plan that, that would include God's power uniting all things, things in heaven and things on earth. Everything that was undone by the fall of man would be made right through the work of one man, a new Adam, Jesus Christ, to whom God gives all authority and power and dominion. Chapter 1, verse 20 to 22. It was also a plan that would include God's special work in history with the nation of Israel. A plan that would even roll out through his promises to Israel, only that once Christ bore the sins of the world, the floodgates of salvation would open to all the nations, right? The, the law of Moses would no longer stand as this, as this barrier alienating the Gentile peoples from the promises bound up with God's covenant to Israel. Rather, God's only son would tear down that dividing wall of hostility through his death. Jesus abolished the law of commandments, it says in chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Now Jew and Gentile alike who believe in Jesus would attain all of God's promises. Forever these who were chosen before history and rescued through the death of Jesus in history, would reflect the immeasurable riches of God's mercy at the end of history. 
God did this all, it says in chapter 1, verses 6, verse 12, and verse 14, that he did this all for the praise of his glory and his grace. He did it, chapter 3, verse 10 tells us, so that through the church, get that now, so that through the church, not apart from the church, through you and me, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Then Paul enters chapter 4. He enters chapter 4 saying, Therefore, therefore, because of what Jesus has already done, therefore, because of what you are in Him, people of God, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You cannot obey those commandments in isolation. You can only obey these commandments of Jesus with each other, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Paul continues, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Note that great commission language here. One baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now what about the teaching part? Well, verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Then verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints... There it is, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's a good word for this day. Rather, speaking the truth in love, so there's more teaching, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's a beautiful snapshot of the church making disciples. We've got the church standing on the unshakable, rock-solid foundation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and risen. These people then share the same triune God and fellowship with Him. They share the same baptism, and they are teaching one another with one ultimate goal in mind, that they become more and more like Jesus. And as we see, that teaching comes partly from leaders of the church and partly from all the members speaking the truth to one another in love. Brothers and sisters, we are partners in bringing each other to maturity in Christ. I need you to speak the truth to me or I will not look like Jesus. 
You see the, you, you see the goal of, of our meeting together and our hanging out with each other isn't just information transfer on Sunday morning. It's not just to put some more prayer requests on the list and care group. It's not just to bond with each other for the sake of bonding. Those things are sweet, absolutely. But the goal of our fellowship is that each of us might represent Jesus more faithfully on earth while he is reigning in heaven. Isn't that what our world needs to see? Isn't that what we need to see? Christ reigning from heaven. For us, on our behalf, we need to see Christ's victorious sin. I mean, Christ's victorious victory over sin and death. Might have to edit that sentence. See, Supreme Court decisions can't change that reality. Christ is reigning and our lives together on earth are meant to display his authority and his power and his kingdom in heaven, which will one day be on earth. Christ is the one we want people to know. He's the one who is glorious. He's the son of man reigning. We want our light to shine before men so that folks see our good deeds and give glory to him. That happens when we partner to bring each other to maturity in Christ. Your partnership in disciple making is no small thing. Give the world a glimpse of the new creation as you learn to follow Jesus together. As I mentioned a while back, let's not be surprised at the direction our culture is going. Jesus promised it would be this way. Lawlessness will Increase and the love of many will grow cold. Peter, in 1 Peter, he wrote to Christians in an immoral culture with slanderous opponents and corrupt government systems. And his exhortation is simple keep loving one another earnestly, show hospitality to one another, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. You may feel like your hands are tied right now by the Supreme Court, but don't forget that you are seated with Christ in heaven. Nobody can tie his hands. You can do something great and gospel advancing right now where you are. Our lives can make a huge impact on the culture and those we live around by showing the world around us how a countercultural gospel builds a countercultural community living in an upside-down kingdom where the greatest become slaves of all. Your partnership in disciple-making is no small thing. When the church embraces her partnership in, dis in making disciples, we look more and more like Jesus and less and less like the sinful culture around us. If this is so, if the local church is God's plan for making disciples and for bringing them to maturity, if the chief way of spiritual formation is through the local church and not apart from it, then what does it look like? Well, let's look now at a, a few specific ways this discipleship plays out in various relationships in the local church. This is where disciples making disciples becomes very tangible for us because it takes some of the relationships you already have daily with each other and it sets them into the context of Jesus' present reign and his charge to make disciples of all nations. So let's look at a few of those relationships the New Testament points out. And just as a heads up, my goal isn't to spend much time on how 
to disciple within these relationships. That's next week's message when we talk about teaching. What does it mean? Look at what is, what's included in teaching one another. My goal is simply to point out some of the amazing opportunities we have right before us to partner in helping us and helping each other look more and more like Jesus and helping each other be that countercultural, alternative, redemptive community that the world actually needs. So one of the major disciple-making, disciple relationships in the church is, of course, the relationship that elders or pastors have to the church. Uh, in Acts 14, you see this priority as Paul is going around and he's preaching the gospel in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. And then he returns back through Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, encouraging all the disciples. But one of the things he does is he leaves elders for them in these churches. He appoints elders for them. And then later on in, in Acts chapter 20 and 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1... We learn that the elders carry a very significant role in teaching the church. Paul even uh, gives the elders an example uh, in Acts 20 where his teaching actually took place not just publicly, but also from house to house. Elders nourish the congregations with the voice of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. And so in many ways, elders are to be the exemplary disciple makers as they educate people in the Christian faith and pour themselves into the members and lead Christ's sheep toward godliness. Exemplary disciple makers. That's, a, that's been a very sobering matter of prayer for the elders. The word of God has laid heavy on our hearts in the area of disciple making because it's forced us to ask the question, are, are we as leaders of Christ's church, are we making disciples? Yes, we're teaching the gospel. God forbid that we ever move away from that. But are we, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, are we sharing with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves? But also our own selves. You see, it's tempting for me, at least... I don't know if this is true of the other three brothers, but it's tempting for me to think that if we just get things down on paper, right? if we articulate our vision well enough in word, if we shore up the constitution and bylaws according to scripture, if we lay out the plan for care groups, and if we get all the mechanics of the Redeemer machine ironed out, then, you know, disciples are just going to automatically start popping out the other end. Each of these things I mentioned may still be a necessary element to our leadership, but far be it from us to think that making disciples is so mechanical and lose sight of the personal, patient instruction that we see exemplified in the Scriptures again and again and again. We want to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us, Redeemer. I like the way Ben put it for us. At the start of this week, he emailed, he texted the, the other, all of us elders, and he said, may we be in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in Redeemer Church. Galatians 4.19. I don't know how Paul knew what childbirth anguish was like, 
But I think we get what he's talking about. May we be in the anguish of childbirth. That's where we want to be for you, Redeemer Church. And, and I want you to know that the Lord is doing good things in our hearts uh, towards you and uh, showing us where we each need to repent in our own specific ways and, and follow Christ more closely in this discipleship. Another relationship that we find in the New Testament is faithful men discipling faithful men. This is 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Paul is speaking to Timothy here, and he says, Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful or reliable men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul is here passing on the gospel baton. Okay? Timothy passes the gospel on to other faithful men, and then those faithful men are then to pass the gospel on to others in the church. As some authors have put it, there's a given about the Christian faith. It's something inherited from the very beginning of God's action for our salvation, and it is to be passed along as long as this world lasts. That's a given. It is to be passed along. In our own context, we have teachers appointed for discipleship hour. We have care group leaders. We have other men leading Bible studies and speaking. Sometimes the older teaching the younger, the younger teaching the older at others. These brothers are not merely facilitators. They are training and equipping the saints. They've been entrusted with the gospel to then impart the same gospel to others who then might carry the baton to others. And you need to know that <clears throat> we don't intend to reach a quota of faithful men. Right? Well, we've got enough faithful men. Don't need any more teaching the gospel. No, we want all of the faithful men teaching other men that these men might then be able to carry it on to others, like people in their homes and people in their streets. And so, oh, that all of our men would long to pass the gospel baton on to others. And if they don't know how, let's equip them. And come to us if you don't know how. We will. We long to equip you. So let's pray for this to happen. Or ladies, check out discipleship from Titus 2. Titus 2, chapters, uh, this is verses 3 and 5. It says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior not slanderous or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Sisters, have you ever read that in light of the Great Commission charge that Jesus gives. This is a very unique charge to you. This is Jesus taking the Great Commission, Matthew 28, and, and zeroing in on women and saying, here you go. Here, here's what it looks like played out in your, in your life. Whether you're here in Fort Worth or in Bangladesh, your labors are a huge part of accomplishing the Great Commission. 
Those sisters who've walked with Jesus are obligated to take the younger sisters under their wings and show them how the gospel of Christ applies to, to marriage and to eating and to purity and to work and to serving others in their complementary role alongside men. Paul rejoiced to have sisters like Euodia and Syntyche and, and Phoebe serving side by side. Now let's also recognize that older may very well depend on the context in which the Lord has you. Rachel was part of a, a, a church in College Station, and, and a large portion of that church was made up of college students. In that context, older was someone in their 30s. And sure enough, there was one sister in her 30s who embraced the calling of Titus II and poured herself into the younger sisters. She even had a regular class on biblical womanhood from, from year to year that you could sign up for, and it was always full. And to this day, Rachel and I give thanks for that sister so selflessly pouring into the younger girls, many of whom had, had either just come to faith or who hadn't had anybody to give them a robust vision for biblical femininity, you know, strong, prayerful, Christ-loving, laugh-at-the-future kind of, of women. Some of them didn't have mothers to teach them these things. Some of them didn't had mothers, but they, those mothers weren't Christians. They jumped in and this woman taught them. Ladies, I challenge you to write down a name of one or two sisters in this church before the end of today. Write them down, begin praying for them, and then start meeting with them periodically. If you're not already, there's a lot of ways in, in which I feel like I'm playing catch up with what the Holy Spirit is already doing in our, in our congregation. So open your life to each other the house doesn't have to be clean for coffee and Christ. Okay, let them help you clean while you preach the gospel to each other. Or if you're married, husbands, you clean up so that she gets time with other sisters. Invite them into the rhythms of your day and ask them questions about the scriptures, their goals for life, needs for prayer, how things go in. Read a solid Christian book together on these matters and discuss it. You've got a remarkable calling, ladies. And as a further note from this text, you should see that older doesn't mean you're retired from the Great Commission. It just defines your role in it. Gray hair doesn't mean you're finished. Gray hair means you've got a crown of glory and wisdom to share with these younger sisters. According to Proverbs... The Bible also spells out discipleship in terms of a husband's relationship to his wife. A husband's relationship to his wife. Ephesians 5, 25 to 30. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Brothers, our marriages are designed to be a parable of Christ's sacrificial love for his church. And part of our calling is to wash our wives with the word, not by identity, of course, but by analogy. Only Christ can truly wash with the word. But when we become one flesh as husband and wife, we become the means by which Christ does it. 
we nourish and cherish her. What is this word that we wash them with? Well, it's the word of the gospel. The rest of Ephesians has taught, this up to this, taught us this up to this point. With this word, it's Christ actually separates the church from the world. And it's with this same world that Christ holds the church near to himself. And it's this word that makes us holy and it transforms every aspect of our being into Christ's own likeness. That means every desire, word, thought, and deed, husbands have this unique charge of covering their wives with the gospel. If you've been paying any attention to the news, this is a huge calling, brother. And it's a very sobering word from Jesus. Far be it from us to raise our fists at the Supreme Court while we leave our wives malnourished with the word of truth. We have a glorious opportunity to put the beauty of Jesus' love on display for the glory of God. And part of this calling is washing your wife with the word. Give a same-sex marriage-affirming world a picture of true marriage, Christ's holy love for his bride to the glory of God. This, too, is part of the Great Commission. We also find parents relating to children in the way of making disciples. Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. In other words, parents, especially fathers, carry the responsibility of regularly imparting the truth to the children the Lord has given us. That happens through intentional times together in the Word as a family, like regular family worship, and it happens through spontaneous opportunities the Lord grants us throughout the day with our children. We might even take the example of Timothy's mother, Eunice. She had a sincere faith and apparently raised Timothy in the Scriptures from childhood. Parenting is part of the Great Commission. Now, it's true that our homes won't ever be a perfect picture, but they're at least a small window for the world to look into and see what the rule of Christ does to a family, to a home. It's a window into which the, the world can look and see how the gospel of, say, justification by faith cultivates humility in a father who is not afraid to ask his son's forgiveness because he knows that his standing in Christ is enough. It's a window for the, Lord, for the world to look into on, on how the abiding joy of the Lord sustains a family through trial. Your homes are a window into which the, Lord, the world might look to see that our identity is not tied to our children and their reputation and their success in sports. Our identity is tied to Christ and Christ alone as parents. One last relationship is mentioned in the New Testament, and it's the one that comes up more than any of the others, namely the relationship of all to all. 
You see, it's not so much that the other relationships I mentioned should be the only ones we engage in. And it's also not so much that we should so compartmentalize these other relationships that they never overlap or relate to each other. Rather, all these various relationships nourish a community where all disciples are ministering to all. So here's a taste of some of these places. Romans 15, 14, we were there a few weeks ago. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you. So he's commending this particular church for this. Uh, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. This is a good thing when its members are able to instruct one another. Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we, so we church, are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So this is everybody speaking the truth in love to each other. This is the young speaking to the old, the old speaking to the young, the wealthy speaking to the poor, the poor speaking to the wealthy, the married speaking to the singles, the singles speaking to the married, right? Paul wasn't married. and He spoke into the life of a husband because he saw the chief husband, Jesus Christ, and knew him. You need not be married to speak into married people's lives. So married speaking to singles, singles speaking to the married, the truth, everybody speaking to each other. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And it's not you individual, it's you church. Let the word of Christ dwell in the church richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Hebrews 3.12 Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. These are pictures, little glimpses, and there are more of them, of, dis of all discipling all. You and I have been joined together to disciple one another while we're preaching the gospel to the world. And I think that we're beginning to see here is that the Sunday morning sermon isn't everything. A Sunday morning sermon may be helpful to the growth of the church, but it's not sufficient to make disciples. If Sunday morning is the only time we're in the Word and hearing the Word and speaking the Word, then we better check our first love. If we're too busy to devote ourselves to one another in this way and to everyone else the Lord may add to our number in this way, then we're way too busy to be following Jesus. But I know that's not the case with most of you, Redeemer. Most of you want to follow Jesus. You want to pour into others and others pour into you. So let me leave you with a few encouragements as we close. First of all, remember that the risen Son of Man is with you till the end of the age. The risen Son of Man, He is with you till the end of the age. You may not even know where to begin discipling your wife or your kids, um, 
if you're a sister, how to disciple other women or each other. You see that it's supposed to happen, but you're scared, you're overwhelmed, you need help, you don't know how to answer her questions before you exhaust yourself at launch. Remember that Christ never commissions his people without going with them. So he promises to be with you, he says, at the end of Matthew 28, verse 20. I will be with you to the end of the age. He will help you. Ask him to help you. And then simply be faithful with the relationships God has already given you. Some of them we've mentioned today. And then also remember that everything you need to disciple others is found in Christ himself. And Christ lives in you, according to Romans 8. Everything you need to disciple others is found in Christ, and Christ himself lives in you. Everything you need to disciple others, Jesus has it in himself. You wonder, like, how, how could I declare truth like this to, to others so regularly? You wonder... I don't even know where to begin praying. I don't know how to care. You wonder, how am I supposed to protect them? How am I supposed to lead them? Well, let me encourage you that Jesus, you see, he is the supreme prophet who speaks pointed truth and he reveals God most clearly to us. Jesus is also the supreme priest. He carried our burdens to the cross and then stood in our place at the cross to take away our sins. He is able truly to sympathize with our weaknesses. He intercedes for us right now at God's right hand according to the will of God. Jesus is also the supreme king. He protects his people and he leads them into the the kingdom of peace and righteousness. If he is prophet, priest, and king, what do you think happens to his people when he lives inside of them? They become prophets, priests, and kings. You see, Moses once longed for that day when all the Lord's people would be prophets. Peter says that that day came at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. So, if the Spirit of Christ is truly in us, we speak God's will to one another. Because Christ, by the Spirit, lives in us. And we have the written word here for us. We know what to speak into people's lives. We can speak to others as Jesus speaks to us. And then later on, Peter himself doesn't, he doesn't shy away from calling us a royal priesthood. See how he brings both kings and priests together. A royal priesthood. John himself calls us a kingdom of priests. You see, Christ, when he lives in us, he enables us to bear each other's burdens as he bore our burdens as the high priest. Christ enables us to intercede for us because he is praying at the Father's right hand and teaching us how to pray. 
Christ enables us to lead each other away from Satan's domain to the kingdom of God's beloved Son because this is what Jesus Christ himself as king has done for us. Christ as king, when he lives in us, he helps us and enables us to take up the shield of faith together and the sword of the Spirit while seated with Christ in the heavenly places. This is who you are in Christ. You see, he changes everything. Everything that we need for discipling each other is found in Jesus. And he lives inside of you. Trust him in this. And with this blessing I leave you, may the God of peace, this is from Hebrews 13, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, May he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together.